You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Stephen Kent, this is one hell of a year for you, man. You, you I'm got, tired. You look, <laughs> you look like you're alive, but like waiting for the weekend. It's like that song, Working for the Weekend or whatever the hell it is. You're the embodiment. Everybody's working for the weekend. I only associate that with Derek Zoolander. <laughs> oh my gosh. Now I'm going to have that face in my mind the entire time. That and the... the, the Steel Cobra deal. <laughs> blue, blue, blue Steel. Blue Steel, where it's just blue the stare. It's, uh, it's working for the weekend when the models blow themselves up right at the uh, at the gas station. <laughs> <laughs> or am I, I confusing that. am I confusing that with one of the other 80s songs? <laughs> I think that's it. I think that's it. I, I went on a I went on a ramp the other day. Have you ever seen that? Uh, well, have you ever heard the song um, "Who Can It Be Now" by the Police? Yeah, yeah. That Who is. Who can it be now? Yeah, that is some 80s trippery right there. That and Guy George songs, and you know, mm-hmm. to, to a large degree, as much as I watch it now, modern and they all kind of freak me out. I watch current music videos, not as often because I'm like a 26-year-old boomer, but like at least then they were willing to try things out. Now, now I'm, you know, I bet they're still trying to do it, but like there was a unique flair to that era where they were willing to be weird and I love it. I mean, did you see the the completely reinvigorated like four not 4D, I don't know my my terms, 4K uh, Rick Astley never going to give you up music video. It was remastered. It seemed almost unreal. It's it is so trippy to see the Rick Astley never going to give you up video look like a modern music video. It, it just it warps your entire perception of reality. And if you've not seen it, uh, look up the remastered video. It's it's what <laughs> have a. Okay, David Hasselhoff. I've never listened to any of his songs, but I do know he was big in Germany at one point. David Hasselhoff had songs? He had songs. He went on after Baywatch to go be a pop star in Europe. I missed that part, yeah. Everyone in America did. But I just I just thought he was SpongeBob's transportation uh, back to Bikini Bottom. He was, but there's this big, like, 20-year gap between Baywatch and when... You know, he he helps out SpongeBob. He was big in Europe, <laughs> especially in Germany, and he wrote a bunch of like you know how K-pop music has like English yeah. slang thrown in there. Mm-hmm. He did the same thing, but in German. So it's highly aggressive. But then he'll talk about like going out and skipping on warm summer days and stuff. It, it was really weird, and he basically got looped into like this film student's big project that got turned into a sci-fi Indiegogo movie called Kung Fury, and he actually wrote and produced and starred in the music video 
for it. And it looks like a trashy 80s action movie, but it was done two years ago. And it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, we could rewrite history of the stuff if we wanted yeah. to use that power for evil. <laughs> I would uh, I would have you opti- uh, um, gifted with that power because you would do good things with it. I would put so many dinosaurs in World War II. <laughs> have you um you you live in in northern virginia along with me have you ever been to the civil war dinosaur uh museum experience uh dinosaur land yeah There's... dinosaur land it's it's out near the uh the place where robert e lee is buried um uh, it's, it's out... natural natural, natural bridge. bridge yeah natural bridge virginia so this is a civil war sort of like not wax museum but it's like an outdoor experience with uh um like statues and scenes of the civil war with dinosaurs included watching <laughs> andrew jackson using a robot arm to strangle a t-rex was one of the most metal things and, and the dinosaurs sober. were the dinosaurs were with the union right the dinosaurs yes. were were put forward by the union to squash the south it's it's this really weird place dude it was i i went there sober so i went there about a year ago during like the height of the crazy summer of 2020 when everyone thought i would mm-hmm. die leaving my neighborhood so i went there like in the middle of the day i'm thinking you know maybe i should get really kind of screwed up before walking in but i walked in completely yeah. sober i was like the only one there and like it's it, it's funny because that's the thing about the south like they 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 have like this quirky ability to like make fun of themselves in a way that i don't mm-hmm. typically see of my more northern compatriots and, and it's one of those places where it's like if you go there expecting like a history tour you're not getting it at all i fully intend to go back and do edibles before walking through i feel like that's the best way to do it yeah yeah, I'm going to do it. It's just a question of when and where I'm going to lodge afterwards. <laughs> yeah, you could sleep underneath a brontosaurus. I think they'd let you sleep on the property. I had two gummies, and then I woke up the next day in between Robert E. Lee and a bronchiosaurus. That's a great way to start the day. <laughs> so uh, on, on, to, on to some serious stuff. Uh, at what point did you consider drinking while writing your book? Because every author hits that point. Uh, I do drink while writing on Thursday afternoons, so I I really do prefer to go out to one of the local bars on Thursday afternoons while I'm working on how the force can fix the world and uh, and at least get two two beers deep. Um, you know, just yeah, it loosens you up a little bit. Did but the I others will... let, did the others let you keep the title? The editors expanded the title, so it was originally going to be how the force can fix America, mm-hmm. and the book is still very. America centric, but they wanted it. The publisher wanted it to be how the force can fix the world. So, you know, it can be marketed towards everybody, maybe be put into other languages. Um, and I'm, I'm supposed to try and work in some anecdotes about other countries. Um, but you know, like for me to do that kind of stuff, like I'm not an international affairs guy. I have to like hit Wikipedia and be like, what kind of revolution happened in this country? So we can sell a book there. Um, but yeah, that's been some of the places where editorial feedback has come in. And so far, how's the process been? Because you and I uh, spoke about it when we got a beer like six, seven months ago. Yeah. And you were still trying to work through, like, I think the first four chapters. You were able to hustle mm-hmm. through that. Uh, how, how have things been since with the process? Well, they've been going. Uh, the book is due in two weeks uh, on May 15th. I've got to turn in the manuscript now. I think the, the way it tends to go is they don't expect any of their authors to ever turn anything in on time. But I'm not 
I'm considering that not to be an option. I'm I'm turning it down to May 15th or bust. Uh, so I've got two more weeks to finish up just one more chapter and the introduction to the book. And I the process has been good. I think mostly just like you end up with like word salad. I mean, I've got like the goal of writing 5,000 word chapters and I end up with 12 and then I realize there's no narrative flow. It's just a couple of paragraphs from when I woke up one day to write, a couple of paragraphs from the next day I woke up to write and they're not connected at all. Because it's really hard to find time to write because you wake up and you've got to kind of like reread what you did the day before so it makes sense and then you can pick up where you left off. And then by the time you've done that, it's an hour wasted or you're gone and then you've got to do your real life job so it's been it's been challenging but somehow i've made it through yeah i feel like with writing a book specifically it's one of the few times in your life where you really get get to fight your inner monologue of things because you have this idea for how you want the the story to flow you have the idea of a lot of the technical aspect you want to put in to at least make sure that you're doing everything correctly and then when you actually put it on paper you're constantly fighting yourself because you never know if it's good enough and i will say that's the one thing that i i I learned myself self-publishing two books it's one of the reasons why i say that some people are not meant to self-publish some people are meant to you know published traditionally it's because the one thing that i struggled with a lot myself and this came with a lot of you know pros and cons was the fact that uh, my first book i didn't set a deadline for i think if i had a lot of things could have been fixed a lot of things could have happened a little bit sooner which would have been better for when it originally released but when i did the second book myself you know i was kind of like my own worst enemy it was like wake up dumbass it's time to get 600 words in before you go to lunch and yeah. then i i put myself on that calendar so i gave myself nine months and I got it done in like eight months. So then I spent, you know, a month kind of just leaving it alone before I sent it off to the editors I paid. But it's one of those things where it's like, you have to just trust that you've done your best. You put in the best work that you can under the constraints of work, family, and everything else. And that ultimately, you know, that by the time you send it off to editors, you know, it, it, you're go- they're going to find mistakes. And I, I did actually what you suggested, which was bringing in an outside editor and paying them to review your work. So I was mostly going off charity for a while. I'd send to one chapter to one person be like, hey, give me some notes on this, some feedback. But mostly, most people will tell you, this is amazing. This is great. What a, what an awesome essay this is. And I'm just kind of like, all right, mom or sister or friend, <laughs> like, I really need you to tell me, actually, son, this makes no sense. Uh, but no one will tell you that. So <laughs> the best thing to do really is to find somebody who is like an editor. Uh, maybe they do it professionally and, and have them spend some time with it. So now I've got some like $20 an hour right now going through my chapter on redemption because it it's sprawling. It's just this sprawling essay. Um, and it needs somebody to go in and, and tell me like, these this doesn't make any sense. You need to connect A to C a little bit better uh, and chop off all of B. Like That's really important to do. So I, I have found it to be incredibly worth it. So I, I appreciate that advice from you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's one of those little things that a lot of people don't really think of because, well, I had a lot of people who offered to do it for free because they wanted to be nice. I would still Venmo them like, you know, 30, 50 bucks if I knew it was going to take them a couple of weeks because at least then if, you know, if they get the money, they feel a little bit more obligated. So it was me kind of coercing them in that sense of, oh, well, you know, I'm going to give this to you. And if you don't want it, you could send it back, but it's yours as a thank you. It, it kind of forced yeah. them to do that because otherwise- You get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise, like, I don't think anyone I ever sent the first couple chapters of my first book to ever read it. 
Yeah. I feel like they just kind of like skimmed it and they got the premise, but you know, I'm looking for like, I know there are mistakes there. I just need you to find them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they will. And they will. I think, um, you know, writing is hard. Writing a book and writing over a thousand words is incredibly difficult. I mean, a freaking op-ed that you would send in for publication, you worked in, in op-eds uh, previously, like it's 800 words. That's, God, that's so short. Like that is such a small burst uh, of words and opinion. And when you're talking about a chapter of a book, you're talking about five to 6,000 words, um, 8,000 if you're talking about really wordy chapters. Um, and most people just look at it and I, I think they're just like, oh, I'm impressed by this. <laughs> you can articulate yourself. And that's just, you got you to gotta seek a specialist uh, if you really want help curbing your writing and making it as good as possible for general audiences. What was the mindset the, the mindset shift for you going from, you know, knowing how to properly do an op-ed to really getting to flesh your stuff out in full chapters. That's it. That's interesting. So I know that there was a mindset shift. I think it was mostly just not editing myself as much as I normally would, because when you're writing an op-ed, you really do have to make sure that every sentence that you put in has absolute utility. You're talking about 800 words. That is barely more than a page on a on a Word document. It's very, very small. Um, but with a book, you really can let it breathe and you can make the points that you want to make. So I think the mindset difference is this. You spend several hours writing and you do not edit while you write. You do stream of consciousness writing and then you go back over it later and go, Ah, this part can go. That made no sense. Cut it out. But you don't edit while you write. Well, I think while you do an op-ed, you really do got to like think it through every step of the way. Writing a book, you'll you'll never get done if you are editing whilst writing. Absolutely. And that's one of those things that, I mean, just from a, a technical aspect, you're going to save a lot of time. And, and as you mentioned, I would much rather eliminate word count than really focus on having to add whole entire sections to it. Because yeah. if it's just all there, then I could piece it together. If I have to go in and make the pieces, that's the hard part. Yeah. And my, my editor at the, at the publisher, um, Hachette Center Street, was really happy with long, long chapters. They wanted 5,000 words, which uh, you know, sorry, I, I've turned in like 8,000 to 7,000 word or seven to 8,000 word chapters in most cases, but they don't mind it if you've broken it up with subheads. So this is, you know, writing four paragraphs and then you've got kind of a bold subtitle. It's like, you know, the force can work for anybody. And then you do four more paragraphs and then you go lessons from Boba Fett. And then you do four more. And like, if you just break things up and give the reader an opportunity to put their bookmark in and go to sleep for the night, take a break. It doesn't matter if your chapter is sprawling, you just need to provide stopping and starting points. So that, that format has been so helpful. And I only learned that by reading other people's books. I did not know to use subheads at all, but I picked up three books in 2020 that I loved, or I loved the authors, uh, and I wanted to read how they write. And by reading how they write, I learned to write because <laughs> I didn't know how to do it before. 
And, and that's one of those things that a, a lot of first-time writers get tripped up on because they stop reading other people's books because they don't want other people's writings affecting them. And, and I think that's a catch-22. So, yeah. like, with How to Succeed, you know, it was historical fiction. Uh, I stopped reading other historical fiction. I didn't read any book that was relating to mine, but I still kept reading. Uh, so, you know, I would read a lot of fiction. I would read comedy. I would read, uh, you know, horror, stuff like that, because at least it was getting my gears turning to what other people are writing in different settings. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to end up stealing what another author wrote or trying to feel like I have to measure up to another author. So that was one of those things that, you know, it's, it is one of those things where it's like you, you need, you can't, you have to stop reading some stuff, but you should not stop reading because it's almost like getting ready for a 5k. You have to do a bunch of smaller runs to get ready for the big run. Yeah, there's a sort of an example in, in my my journey writing How the Force Can Fix the World where my favorite of the books that I picked up in 2020 to, to kind of do homework to figure out how the heck to write a book, I picked up Matt Iglesias's One Billion Americans. This is the one of the guys who founded Vox. He's now out on his own because Vox got way too uh, PC for him to do his work. So in One Billion Americans, Matt Iglesias has a writing style where he really tries not to justify things that most common sense or most people would consider to be common sense, like having kids, that having kids makes you happy, right? That having kids is a thing that gives people purpose in life. You could write an essay like debating whether or not that is true, or you could go with the common sense and go, having kids is good. You should have kids because it will give you direction in life. Matt Iglesias writes very um, to the point and just goes, it is good. Therefore, you should do it. And when I read all of his book, I went, oh, I really like the way that he does this. He doesn't feel a need to debate with himself on the page. He says, I believe this to be good and you should too. And so in my writing, I started doing that. And I really like the way that it came across, but it's mimicry. And, and you got to be like really careful about how you go about doing that because some of my chapters have it and some don't. And that's a very big style problem that I've got to reconcile in my editing process in the next month. Yeah, I mean that that is one of those things that I I had to deal with because for my second book I read a lot of um Hunter Thompson. I read Better Than Sex and I also read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. And the one thing that I realized was that I would catch myself. It's like, this isn't how I would write something. This is how he would write it. And to an extent, like what I would do is I would just kind of continue with the thought process and then I would edit later and then kind of rewrite it myself. But it's one of mm -hmm. those things where it's like, it's not good or bad as long as it sounds genuine to the content. The, the one interesting you brought up was kind of like this assumed knowledge for the reader. And I, I actually like I, I defend that style of writing. You know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, you should definitely show the other side. And you should when you're doing more of a research focused project. But for his book specifically, and I haven't read it. I just watched his interview on Joe Rogan about it. I still need to pick it up. You know, for, for the most part, it's like if you're going and reading his book, you already have a certain amount of assumed knowledge on the subject matter of population scale and immigration mm -hmm. and things like that. So it would almost be a waste of time for him to go back and try and do all that extra stuff. It would be almost like an extra book. Whereas with yours, I mean, I feel like the assumed knowledge is your average amount American, while they might not be a giant sci-fi nerd like us, everyone to a degree has an assumed knowledge on the basis of Star Wars. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so like, there's, there's sort of going to be early on in my book, there's going to be a need to be like, and that's when Anakin Skywalker met Padme. Padme is the, you know, the queen of Naboo and Anakin Skywalker, a young boy who grew up on Tatooine. But at some point in the book, you aren't going to keep going back and explaining that. Um, And that's really the premise of the entire book is Star Wars is one of the most popular common grounds of culture that we have left in the world. And particularly as Americans that like, you don't need to tell somebody too much about Luke Skywalker. We all, we all know it's, it's part of the the popular culture. Why'd you want to go with doing a book about this and not just an op-ed? I've written op-eds. I mean, I've I've written dozens at this point of of Star Wars op-eds, and they're informing the book. Um, they're kind of going back, and I'm like taking like little ideas from different op-eds I've written uh, and applying them to larger chapters. Like I wrote this one op-ed for the Federalist about uh, cancel culture and whether or not Disney would um, uh, allow Kylo Ren to pursue redemption. So I've done that that essay, and I, I've incorporated it into the chapter. But the the real reason I just like wanted to do the book was because I I did the, I do this podcast called Beltway Banthas and I've learned so many lessons from other Star Wars fans left, right and center about how the 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 franchise is, is viewed and internalized into people's moral compasses. And so I just wanted to do a book where I regurgitated the lessons that I've learned that have just made me really feel like Star Wars is still, despite everything, one of the great common grounds that we can share to talk about morality, good and evil, right and wrong, um, and not have things get too heated with politics. Yeah, and I mean, I feel that the timing of your book is better now than probably, you know, let's say like a year ago, because yeah. I can go through, so like, I, you could always tell like what who's in power, not by watching the news, not by voting, just by going through the Barnes Noble uh, current affairs section. Because during the Trump years, it was all books talking about how Russia stole the election and how Trump is going to get impeached. Now it's all about how Hunter Biden smokes Parmesan and why Kamala Harris should be in jail and all this other stuff. So it's really interesting because you've always got a lot of publishers putting out where really red meat topics for the partisan majority. So that way, what you know, as I feel, they can go ahead and make as much money as possible. But with your book, what you've done is you're trying to really tap down on what I feel is like the majority of Americans who might lean one way or another, but are politically apathetic and feel disenfranchised by, you know, big conservative ink and big progressive ink and everything else. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to speak in a language that we all have a foundation on to kind of get people back to first principles. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better myself, and you should record an advertisement for my book, <laughs> because I have found I am really horrible at explaining uh, the premise of my book and the why of it to people. I was on Matt Kibbe's uh, Kibbe on Liberty uh, last month, but they just released it today, and I was I remember he asked me in the interview, like, so why are you doing this book? And I was like, blah, 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 blah. Social <laughs> fabric is ripped, and so you should uh, you should be my, uh, my advertisement guy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, and, and speaking of which, I mean, it's not just the book that you have coming out this year. You've also started a new show with Al Jazeera called Rightly. Mm. When, when, when did that start? Because that kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, it really did. Um, so the show is 
uh, called Right Now with Stephen Kent. A very, very creative title. And it's on a new network called Rightly. So Rightly... Okay, I, I, got, the, I got the mixed up, sorry. It's okay. Almost, it's fine. Almost everybody thinks this, and that's totally fine. So the, the network itself is called Rightly, and it is a project by Al Jazeera. So Al Jazeera International News Network based out of uh, Qatar, and they have um, several different properties within that umbrella of, of media that they that they produce. So they've got Al Jazeera International, they've got Al Jazeera English, then there's AJ Plus, which is sort of like an online YouTube and podcast-centric American programming, very far left, uh, very, very far left programming. Um, and they wanted to do something that balances out their roster and shows that like they care about the the intellectual traditions in America that exist on the right, because you know we are more than 50% of the population, uh, people who might consider themselves to be conservatives, independents, or libertarians. So they are calling this thing rightly, and I am the showrunner of the first show called Right Now. And it's a weekly YouTube show and podcast where I talk to young rising stars, Gen Z and millennial conservative and libertarians about where our movement is going uh, and the future of the country. Who, who do you feel is the target audience, though? <laughs> Would you <laughs> That's say That's a great question. Yeah, because, I mean, for, for a program like this, and I've watched, um, you know, so, some of the episodes so far that you've released – um, you know, it's very much like you have to have an understanding of American politics for it. But the one thing that I think you as a host are good at are at least breaking things down so anybody can understand. So like I'm trying to think if I were somebody watching this in like Europe or Asia or something, could I still understand it? And I think you passed the test with it. But I think that's the tricky thing about this type of programming. Yeah, make yeah. sure that, you know, you're not talking past people, but you're not watering it down too much. You're trying to get that sweet middle spot. Absolutely. And I would say that the the audience, first of all, is American. I mean, Al Jazeera is an international brand, but rightly is a, is an, a United States-centric project. Um, so it exists for anybody to be able to listen to it, but the intended audience is Americans. Um, and then beyond that, the intended audience, as far as I see it, is not just like conservative Americans who like identify as Republicans or really like solidly conservative because I really do believe that temperamentally, most Americans are conservative. Like it's, we talk about this all the time with how the Democrats do not even understand or recognize the diversity of black voters uh, who align with the Democratic Party but are far more conservative than rabid white liberals um, in their cohort, right? So a lot of people in America are small C conservative. But I really am like trying to do a show that appeals to the alienated majority who just do not feel that MSNBC and Fox News represent reality uh, and the reality of our discourse that like when we talk to our neighbors, this is what we think about each other and how we treat one another. Like I really believe in the the barstool, uh, the barstool American idea. Or like we go to the bar and we talk and and are kind to people. And we and it's like when we sit down with a Democrat or Republican and we otherwise don't share anything with, we're just we're cool. Like we may like fight a little bit and argue, but like, it's cool. We can be friends, but you don't get that impression when you turn on cable news and it's no surprise. Their audiences are very small. Like their audiences are very small. And yet the entire country kind of like pulls each other, each other's hair out over what happens on these networks that hardly anybody is really watching. Yeah. And that's one of those things that gets, gets all the, 
water's muddied, so to speak. It's because we don't necessarily know where we're going with certain ideas. I mean, the way that I would describe a conservative today is almost different than how you would describe a conservative 10 years ago. And I think the same could apply for, like, you know, liberals in that sense. You know, 10 years ago, when Obama was just getting in, it was never, oh, it was always, well, we don't want socialism. We just want everyone to make sure that they have health care. And we don't want to go ahead and take away your guns. We just want to go ahead and make sure that, you know, criminals don't have access to them. Now it's capitalism has failed. Socialism is the answer. And, you know, give us your guns or we'll kill you. And And being conservative is like, is you know, being conservative right now is like I am against cancel culture. Like that is that is becoming. Well, it, it's I am against cancel culture, but we should also nationalize Google. It's also <laughs> one of those things where I'm just like, this is getting kind of weird, guys. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's kind of one of those things. Where, like we all knew that like the Republican Party was really into this like anti PC thing, and I am too. I think that's really important uh, to actually take that stand. But it has become like the defining issue, and it's going to reorder who considers themselves in 10 years to be Republicans. I think people who just want to speak freely. Uh, but we'll see. The Republican Party has their own ways of, uh, of enforcing political correctness on people as well. So yeah. it, is, it is yet to be seen. I, I will say the one struggle I've had with the show is that I'm kind of a heady person. Like I, I only got a bachelor's degree in political science. I'm not like, I don't have like a master's in poli sci and philosophy, but I sometimes struggle to kind of bring things a little bit down to earth um, and get out of my own way and just like being chill and being normal. Um, so one of the things that I think people have commented on the show is like, it's still a little bit heady and needs to get down to earth a little bit more. Like I mentioned like barstool sports, like those are like guys and like, you know, Dave Portnoy, his network, like they like just say it how it is, say exactly what they're feeling. And I think most people recognize the way that they talk about the issues of the day. And I want to try to figure out like where that middle ground is, where I can kind of move closer to there, be more myself, but also kind of respect like the intellectual traditions that I care about. Um, because I got to know who my first, my primary audience is. And that is conservatives and libertarians who care about the ideas. Um, going from doing your podcast to doing a show where you're actually on camera, it has, was that also kind of a transition? Because I've always been one of those people where it's like my show will never be a video show because I've got a face for radio. The, the true purpose is you've got to do a lot more to be able to keep up with the standards and the expectations that people have. So I'm comfortable with this. But from going from a podcast to doing a show where you know, you've know you got a live guest in front of you, you've got another guy on a screen, you've got your monologue segments and everything else. That just seems like a lot more work. I feel right at home uh, doing video first kind of TV style programming. It's kind of the same reason that I got into TV commentary and punditry, being a guest on people's shows in the first place is I'm just not really scared of looking directly into a camera and seeing teleprompter copy and having bright lights kind of shining on you. I was a theater kid growing up. I always wanted to be an actor. Like, like all these things kind of kind of come together. So like one, like love of writing and, and expressing my ideas, a love of acting and presenting. It all kind of can, can come together to be like, I really love doing television. So sitting on set and doing a TV show, I actually find to be much more calming than alone with a microphone trying to put my thoughts out uh, through that medium. Um, but I also did practice while I was primarily an op-ed writer and working with Young Voices, uh, doing public relations. I was guest hosting 
public access shows in Arlington. So in Arlington, Virginia, there's a public access station, and it's where volunteers can like have their own TV programs. And that's where uh, that's where my show, The Witching Hour, premieres out of. Good for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I, I I would guest host on a public affairs show called the uh, the Square Circle. Um, and so I would go on and I would practice moderating uh, between different guests on a panel. I had to speak to a camera and read teleprompter copy. And I got my feet wet doing that for a year and a half. And when I heard about this opportunity with Al Jazeera to host the show, I just sent them my clips from that public access show and it was enough. And now I'm doing the program. <laughs> it feels great. And sometimes that's all you need. I mean, the, the beautiful thing about public access, and I didn't know we were going to go this way, is that a lot of people think that it's an outdated form of getting to reach a mass audience. Almost everyone immediately goes in either podcasting or YouTube. But just to understand you know, the, the technicalities of how a studio works or having to work with a team of people or having to work with like an actual producer and stuff, Like if you want to do this really professionally in that sense, there's no better outlet out there. And I know some libertarians might be like, but it's publicly funded. I, I know Fairfax Public Access, where we do things as well, it's in a partnership with Cox Cable. So almost no public funding goes towards that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So if people are, are stuck on that, that's one thing. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's like a library. The worst thing you could do is ignore it because you're only going to benefit yourself if you take advantage of it. Yeah, liber libertarians really need to get over themselves on that one. Like, Dude, this I, is I defend the, the library like on a regular basis, and I'm basically equated to Stalin. Yeah, it's it's really, I think, not appalling, but I just think it's really drab to make that argument. I mean, when I spend time at the public access station, I'm surrounded by the area's weirdos, like, to be honest. like, And I, I say that lovingly, like, the people who are in that building are just weird. Like, they're socially awkward. Like, what the heck are you doing here? They're not going to, like, make it doing, like, television, television, but they have a dream and they want to work with cameras and they want to play with, like, teleprompter script and they want to practice, like, editing TV programs and have fun. And you can't do that at home doing a YouTube show. And this person might not not ever make it actually pursuing it professionally. So like what, there are many ways that you can blow public dollars, but I don't think it's blowing it to give these people and, and just like artistic, technically interested people an opportunity to commune together and build and create something. It's not about government like come on public dollars it's your money it's it's a good use of it yeah i i don't i don't know how you feel about jj abrams do you like jj abrams i hate jj abrams okay so so this this well this will probably just solidify that but you know jj abrams got his start in i think miami public access oh cool yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like you don't, you don't know who's going to come from that you really don't no, you don't. You don't. Um, and, you know, I, and I, I was kind of like make, saying like, you know, at this public access station, a lot of people won't make it. Some people do. I mean, the one of the favorite things that I've noticed is people I met on the public access show, I have had like three of them on now onto my my YouTube and TV show as, as guests because we all started there. So like you come up together as a community and, you know, they're just a lot worse ways to bring people together who have like-minded interests um, than funding a public access station. And I'd like to see more stuff like that.
So my, my big question is like, how do you balance all of this? Because you're a father, you have a day job, you're working on the book, you've got the new show going on. Like I, I'm, you know, I don't have kids. I have less responsibilities, but even when I'm trying to balance all those things, it can get hectic sometimes. And while you don't look like you've been sleeping as much, you at least look like you're confident in your ability to maintain it all. I perform under pressure and stress. I, I I do better when I am out of my mind busy than when I am bored and don't have things to do. Um, but that being said, like you just got to assign certain things to certain times, really live on a planner. Um, my book writing, so like I was I was trying to get up every day at like 5 a.m. and write until 7 when my daughter wakes up. And that that was helpful. I would be able to knock out several hundred words at a time, but most of that time would be spent reading what I wrote the day before, right? Like we talked about earlier, and then it would be sort of incoherent if I only wrote for an hour. So what I have right now is Thursday is writing day, and I spend eight eight nine hours writing, and then it's coherent, and I get a lot of a lot of work put in. Um, so you just got to assign certain times to certain things and be disciplined. Right now, I am playing hooky from my job to talk to you, but that's okay. Hey. Uh, you know, the wonderful thing about being in media creation and media and content creation is this is, you know, kind of part of the job. It overlaps. It does. <laughs> There's promotion. a little overlap there. <laughs> if, um, if you could go back and tell yourself like maybe five years ago that this would be all the stuff you were doing, how would you tell yourself to prepare for it? <sighs> Absolute insanity. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I wasn't expecting you to ask, like, how would I tell myself to prepare for it? I, I will say the thing that I'm glad that I did at all, which set me on this path that I am on, book deal, hosting this show with Al Jazeera International, still doing Young Voices PR, doing television. This is all because I started a stupid podcast. Like, I was a social media manager, very unhappy with my job. And I wanted to learn new skills. And so I wanted to do a Star Wars podcast where I interview people about their love of Star Wars. And it turned into a thing. Like, people liked it. And it's not even a huge show, but enough people watched it that there was, like, some social proof. And it just kept leading to more opportunities. So side hustles is why I am in this position. So what would I tell myself to prepare for this moment? Oh, that's that's the one I, I don't know how to answer besides that I wish I had more education. Like, I wish, I don't know, I just wish I had more degrees. But at the same time, degrees wouldn't have gotten me here in the first place. They would just make me feel more confident um, and maybe sometimes be able to get past my imposter syndrome. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that's one of those areas where it's like I, I've thought of I've thought of that. Like I, if I could go back like like, you know, Arnie from the Terminator, but not naked when I go back in time and like tell younger ver you know, younger Remso that you need to do this, this, and this to prepare for it. I, I don't feel like I would have anything to say because I've gotten everywhere I have, good, bad, and different, because I was just at a certain place at the right place at the right time. And ultimately, in everything that we're doing, like I, I get, I get a lot of young, like near the end of their undergrad, college students, like email me, and they might be like, you know, I want to be a content creator. What should I do? And what I tell them is like, you know, I've got my college degree, but I'm a proud white to you grad. And they're like, what's white to you? And I'm like, YouTube University. If you want to figure it out, you could YouTube it or you to me or something. It's one of these things where it's like, you know, especially in the multimedia creator field, whether you're getting into podcasting, writing, doing, you know, filmmaking, anything like this, there really is no set path 
There really is no start here, do this, and you will get there by here. It's a lot of weird things and little side adventures and stuff you've got to figure out. And ultimately, you're never going to feel super confident about it. But just by continuing to pursue it, you're going to go ahead and see that compounding effect of time, experience, and knowledge over time. Yeah, couldn't have put it better myself. I think one of the things that I struggle with is I have a tendency to say yes to a lot of different things. People <laughs> want me to do this, I'll say yes. People want me to do that, I say yes. Um, you know, my my neighborhood, you know, a couple of people in my block want to like take on the the housing, uh, the HOA, and you know, I'm looped into that now too. Become the HOA president, Stephen. That is I, your calling. I'm working on it, man. Um, but no, I, I think one of the things that you have to do is be disciplined about which things you say yes to. And at some point, you have to say no to stuff if it doesn't fit into the other things that you're doing. So if like you get an opportunity to take on a new thing, what is the reason that you're doing it? And does it fold into your other goals and aspirations? But if it's going to take away from the things that create value in your life and make your life easier by making you things like money, you might need to say no. Um, and it's not it's not mean to do it. It's actually sometimes respectful to the person who you ask to be realistic um, about your limitations. And so I'm, I'm currently trying to decide whether or not I'm going to do uh, the board of advisors for this nonprofit out in Hollywood um, focused on entertainment ethics. And I, I initially had said no, but now I'm like, oh, I kind of want to say yes, because it folds into what I'm doing with the book. And if it can help me sell the book, um, in a place like Hollywood, that could be really good. So like these are these are all questions that you have to ask when you're prioritizing what things you do. Or you could take over your HOA and make everyone's life around you better. Yeah, or I could spend my time on neighborhood politics uh, <laughs> being being a little tyrant. Hey, man, if you're not in charge of the HOA, somebody else is. That's no, the one thing you're absolutely I, right. as i'm as I'm moving, that's the one thing I'm not. That's the one thing I'm looking forward to not having to hear about anymore. It's the HOA and the fact that they don't like lawn clippings put out on a certain day, or they don't like the color of the solar lights. Apparently, we have to dim them down to a yellow instead of a blue because that bothers Eat somebody. Me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, man, go fuck yourself. But uh, <laughs> Stephen, we we covered a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. Thank you for coming on. If people want to go ahead and keep up and catch up with all your projects and everything you're doing, how could they do so? So there are so many links. So I'll give you one where I kind of talk about all of these things. Uh, my Substack, my newsletter, where I'm kind of updating not only on my book, but also on the YouTube show and my writings, uh, politicizeme.substack.com. That's politicizeme.substack.com. Would really, really, really love if you'd subscribe, kind of check out the writings and get caught up on some of the projects I'm working on. Awesome stuff. Stephen Kent, always a blast. We need to get a beer before I leave. Where wait, wait, where are you going? I am I am moving to Milwaukee on the oh, 27th. I didn't know you were leaving. I knew you got a yeah. new job, but I didn't know you were going. Uh, when do you go? I leave on the 27th. Okay. All right. So, we're going to have more than one beer before you go. I am totally cool with that. I am just here. I start work technically this Monday. By the time people hear this, people won't care. But yeah, it's a, it's a few weeks of remote work to get started. And that's the big move because I got to become a Wisconsin resident to work at my new place, the Badger Institute, which is a free market think tank based out of Milwaukee. So I'm Well, I I'm don't excited. support you leaving, but I'm excited for your new <laughs> opportunity. I appreciate it, man. You, you've been a great friend and, a, you know, somebody I've been able to rely on for advice. And, you know, I hope that, you know, we've worked on a ton of stuff together in the past. I hope we can continue to do so as friends and as colleagues. 
Thanks, Rimzo. All right, guys. Well, it costs you nothing, but, you know, it, it means the world to me. A five-star rating and review, folks, on Apple Podcasts. You know the deal. Be safe. Be good. Good night. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 